This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Nicole Duncan, formerly the Chief Legal Officer at South32. Nicole has had an eventful career working in-house in the mining industry. Through her involvement in both the merger between BHP and Billiton and the demerger of South32 from BHP, Nicole has certainly made her mark. Today you'll hear what she's learnt from these mergers, how growing up with a father who worked for the World Bank affected her career choices and how someone so successful deals with imposter syndrome. Okay, let's get into it. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on. Thank you for having me, May. It's great to be here with you. I thought we'd start with a bit about your background up until now. I have guided my career through the theme of working with great people on complex and challenging business. So that's what I've always sought. I started life trained as a lawyer, worked in a law firm, but pretty quickly realised that working in a firm was not for me. Once I started with BHP, I loved mining and I loved being part of the business And what I realised as part of that process was I preferred working in the business and always have rather than advising on the business. So I had 16 years at BHP all up. In that time, I moved around different legal roles and I also moved into non-legal roles. So I worked in commercial, I worked in IT and I worked with the board of directors in company secretary. And at that point, working with the board of directors, there was the opportunity to work with South32 because it was a demerger from BHP that was being discussed with the board at very early stages. And it was flagged to me that I could continue to work with that entity, which was an opportunity I jumped at again, coming back to the theme of great people working in that business on really challenging and complex work. At that point, the demerger of South32 was the largest Australian corporate transaction in history. And I couldn't give up the opportunity to be an integral part of that. And so I went with South32. And I have had six years with South32, again, legal and company secretary and compliance being my background. But I've also worked within IT and I've worked within human resources. Wow, amazingly varied background. And we'll come back to the South 32 spin-off a bit later in the interview, but I'd be interested to understand why is it that you've spent so much of your working career in the mining industry? I think it comes from my childhood experiences, which sounds a bit weird, in the sense of my father was an economist with the World Bank. So we moved to Washington, D.C. in 1980, so 80s in America. Instead of going out for dinner with work colleagues, it seemed to be the thing to do to have your work colleagues over to your house for dinner. 
And so much to my mother's chagrin, she found herself having to cook very formal dinners for economists from all over the world to come over for dinner at our house. And luckily, my parents had us participate in those dinners. So we sat around the dinner table with people from all walks of life, all cultures, all backgrounds, and really participated in the dinnertime conversation. And it was through that that I started to understand the role of economic development in the world, the role of trade, the role of businesses versus the role of government, really just some complex systems of work that go into international trade flows. And so when an opportunity arose to work in BHP, on reflection, I now understand that what was so exciting and interesting to me was the role that mining plays in economic development globally. And so I jumped at the opportunity to work for BHP, to work for a large global mining company. And part of the passion that I now understand resides within mining companies so intimately is ensuring equitable participation in the economy. So, you know, mining companies can't help where their ore bodies are found. You know, they, the ore bodies are located where they're located. And so what mining companies are expert at doing is going into communities wherever they may be and working with that local community to develop those ore bodies. And so over many decades of experience, mining companies have now come to understand that they need to work with the local community, with the national bodies, as well as with the regional bodies, you know, all levels of government, all levels of community in order to develop those resources in a sustainable way. And that's what's really kept for me, that passion alive is that sense of equitable economic participation. What an absolutely fascinating story, Nicole. And I hope that you've shared that with your mother so she knows all of those wonderful <laughs> dinners she had to cook. She became an led. expert in, in apricot chicken. <laughs> <laughs> but it led to such a stellar career for her daughter, so worth, I'm sure, every moment cooking over that stove. <laughs> That's a good reminder, May. <laughs> so mergers have obviously been a big theme for your career, and I thought we could talk a little bit about those various mergers and demergers that you've been through and guided. So I thought we could start with the BHP and Billiton one. This was earlier in your career, obviously. Um, so what was your role during that process? So this was 2001 and I was very new to BHP and I was fortunate enough to be one of three lawyers working on the due diligence team for BHP into Billiton. So it was while it was still very, very secret and very small, tight-knit group of BHP people went across to London to do due diligence on Billiton PLC. Uh, the fun part about that was we had been told that Billiton didn't need to do due diligence on BHP and so it was a one-way due diligence exercise but minds must have changed by the time the flights landed into London because we got off the plane to be told oh no you're now the BHP representatives 
for Billiton to do due diligence on BHP. So it was quite an intense and exciting time. And then the transaction was done. It took about six months to complete. And then I worked for about two years on embedding the merger. And that's the interesting part about transactions in my experience is that the transaction itself is relatively fast and straightforward, although when you're in the heat of it, it may not feel like that. But actually embedding the transaction and making it work to open up whatever roadmap you wanted through that transaction, that's where the real hard work comes in. And with BHP and Billiton, I remember that taking about two years. Wow. So can you maybe share some of the challenges? I think you've sort of explained where the hard work begins. And I think that's a great in-house lawyer perspective, because obviously if you're advising externally, you don't get to see what happens once the deal's been consummated. Are there any particular challenges that you faced through that exercise, whether it was being grilled as part of the due diligence or beyond, (laughs) Uh, when you were really, as you said, integrating and making the merger work and come to fruition as everyone imagined it? Well, in terms of the due diligence exercise, that, that involved I think it was something like 12 or 15 people of all of us getting into the room and saying, okay, who knows anything about Octetti? <laughs> who knows anything about the coal business? Who knows anything? <laughs> you put your hand up going, oh, I know a bit about that. So, but, you know, anyway, it turned out, I mean, these were very experienced professional people. So it was a very good exercise. And I think that it all comes down to how the people react, really. And this isn't bespoke to the BHP Billiton merger, but really if you can manage the people issues through any type of transaction or integration, then your likelihood of success skyrockets. And that starts with the board. So getting that merger of the board from two boards into one, agreeing on a chair, agreeing on a CEO. I mean, that's step one. But basically, then what you have to do is cascade that down through the whole organisation. And it's about really winning the hearts and minds of people about what change you're wanting to bring about. And people are wired differently. So they're going to respond to different types of engagement. So some people will really want to understand the rationale for the merger and then they're completely on board. Some people will want to understand how their work processes are going to change, how their system of work is going to change. They need to understand the real nitty gritty. Some people want to know what the new culture is going to be like. Some people just focus on the terms and conditions of their employment. You know, is anything going to change in the way that I'm engaged by the entity who employs me. Other people are going to be really connected into the merger by whether or not they're empowered in their roles. You know, so it's going to be very different to every person, but it really does start and end with making sure that the people embrace the change. And that comes down to clear, regular and consistent communication, basically saying the same thing as many times as you can over and over and over again until people not only hear what's going to happen, but they start to experience it as well and do believe that what you've said is what is being delivered because that's how they're experiencing it. So it's really all about engaging with people. Such 
great insight. And I feel as though you could run a masterclass on how to successively run an integration because, as you said, highlighting it's all about the people and sometimes people forget that along the way. I mean, with the South 32 demerger, it was, you know, very much the same. You know, these were assets that sitting within BHP had very little visibility within the larger organisation. And that was the whole rationale for the demerger was these are high quality assets that deserve to have management's full attention. And so BHP put them all together in South 32 and put in place a management team to give these assets that attention. But really embedding that demerger and getting South 32 to operate well and really start to perform and outperform as it has done over the last few years came through a lot of continual engagement. So yes, there was the demerger and, you know, the whole excitement and enthusiasm of an ASX bell ringing, you know, that's all fantastic. But then it comes back to those questions around how are my terms and conditions going to be changed? You know, how am I going to be empowered to do my role? What systems are changing? You know, all those questions all start to bubble to the top. And so again, it's all about just being as consistent and clear and engaging for as long as possible. And May, that did take quite a number of years because we did discover elements that had to be improved as we went along. So for example, we always had a strategy. It was very clear in the demerger documents what South 32 strategy was, long-term strategy. But what we needed to explain in more detail and more emphatically with our employee base was how is that strategy delivered through your KPIs? Like how are your annual KPIs or, you know, your goals and how you're you're measured annually? How do those connect in with this long-term strategy? And that all came through a business planning process, you know, with an annual business plan, a CEO letter, all of the things that really start to get a rhythm and routine about how the organisation is to work. And getting all of those things right at the start is very, very difficult to do. And so it's just about continually monitoring what is the health of the organisation and how are we tracking in terms of actually embedding what we set out to do. And it's really just, you know, being honest with yourself about how you're performing and how the company's performing. It's interesting, you know, as I listen to you speak, Nicole, you're obviously an excellent in-house counsel and general counsel and company secretary, but I can also hear that you would be an excellent people leader. So much of this conversation to date has been around people and engaging people and communicating with people. And it's so obviously so important to the success Mm. of the company. Now, when you did the South 32 merger, you Obviously, your role had changed by this stage. You were further along in your career. So I'd like to explore a little bit about what was your role through that demerger. And you've noted some of the similarities in terms of challenges, but were there also differences between the BHP Billiton merger and then the subsequent demerger? At the start, my role was formerly General Counsel Company Secretary and head of compliance for, you know, elements like competition law, bribery and corruption. And I was on the executive team working with Graham Kerr, the CEO, and working with the board of directors very closely. On a day-to-day level, what the role looked like was setting up my own functions, so the functions that I would lead, but then I was one of 
basically four executives, including Graham, who oversaw the company from the beginning. So what that then involved was working with the board and working with the broader management team of South 32 to determine the company's purpose to determine the company's values, to determine that long-term strategy. And that was hugely exciting. I remember sitting in the room with Graham, Brendan Harris, the CFO, Mike Fraser, one of the chief operating officers, you know, and, and others in the room to work out what is going to be the purpose of this entity and what are the values that we are going to hold near and dear. And that was such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to set up an ASX50 company in that way. I think when I reflect on the differences between the BHP and Billiton merger and then the South 32D merger, of course I was in very different roles through those organisational shifts. But what my experience of it was with BHP and Billiton, it was all about getting the basic systems right. So because I was more junior, I was more in what people would refer to as, you know, in the weeds of the work, right? And so that was all about how are the systems going to talk to each other? Because at the moment, they're two completely different systems. How can we wire them together so that they can integrate? Whereas with the South 32D merger, I was operating at a much more distant level from that type of detail, but I could still see that critical to the success of the demerger was actually getting those system issues right. And part of that is, I think, to do with setting the culture that you want of an organisation and successfully living that culture because over the years my experience is that you can talk about your culture all you want and you can have all sorts of plans about the culture that you want your company to embrace in order to deliver its strategy but if your systems don't work in a way that's consistent with that culture that means that your people every day are going to be experiencing something so different to that culture that they can't embrace that culture For example, you might say, oh, we want to empower people, but yet you force them to work in a tech system where everything gets workflowed to someone else to decide. So they feel disempowered. And so you're sending them mixed signals. I had a different experience of the two transactions, but fundamentally it really comes down to making sure that those day-to-day systems and processes are really going to work in a way that your whole population can embrace in order to then support the transaction and to support delivery of the roadmap you want. It all sounds extremely detailed and boring, and maybe that's why my background as a lawyer makes me so well set for working on things like that, because it is about getting the basics right. And some people don't like the consistency and the regularity of getting the basics right. They like to be working on different things all the time. And so that's a great skill set to have. But to really embed something, you have to be prepared to be consistent and regular until you get a real drumbeat going. And I think that takes a very focused mindset. Thanks for that answer, Nicole, because I think once again, you've reminded us that everything does come back to culture and people. 
And as you say, the systems and processes that you put around them to support them to create that culture is so important. And you've really explained so well the value that as in-house lawyers that we can bring to these types of transactions, you know, well beyond just the DD and contract drafting. So it's just fascinating to hear also the input that you had on South 32 right at the beginning. So you should be immensely proud of that. Thank you. I am. I am. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. That's wonderful to hear. Now, I'm actually going to change tact a little bit and talk about a topic I know you've spoken publicly about being imposter syndrome. And I thought just to start with, for anyone who doesn't know what it is, would you mind explaining what is imposter syndrome? People will have different types of definitions for it, but my definition is the feeling in a certain context, the feeling of I do not deserve to be here. Now, for people, it's going to be different contexts, right? So some people will feel imposter syndrome at work. Some people might feel imposter syndrome at home. Some people might feel imposter syndrome in certain social settings. So it's not going to be the same experience for every person. And indeed, maybe there are lucky people on this planet who never in their life ever feel imposter syndrome. I am not one of those people. <laughs> I have a I have an imposter syndrome that at times can be alive and well in me, but it is the feeling of I do not deserve to be in this room. I shouldn't be in this room. I'm going to get found out that I'm for whatever reason, not worthy of being in this room. And it's that voice that speaks over and over in my head telling me that and placing doubt into my way of being. Thanks for that explanation. And yes, I think that, as you say, the majority of us have experienced that at some point in different settings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important, as you outlined, it's, you know, broader than just work as well. Can you tell me a bit about, you know, where your passion for this topic has emerged from? You've said that you've experienced it yourself, but why do you think it's such an important topic to talk about? I think what's required from leadership today, when you compare what I know of expectations from leaders, say, 40 years ago, the sense was 40 years ago that leaders were a type of distant well-polished, perfect, supremely professional being and held up on a bit of a pedestal. And so there was a sense of leaders being removed or remote from the broader workforce. I think that leaders today both want to participate within the workforce in quite a connected way, but also the way that workforces are want their leaders to be accessible and understandable human beings. So I think the challenge with leadership today is striking the right balance of being strong and encouraging and instilling confidence in the people that they work with, but also willing to show how they deal with challenges, whatever those challenges might be. And I know that there's that saying for any type of inclusion and diversity, if you, know, if you can't see it, it's hard to imagine being it. 
And I always thought about that when I became a senior leader is, well, if I don't start being transparent about how I deal with challenges, then how can I better help people deal with their own challenges? If I can make my challenges transparent and talk about what I do, then that might help others to deal with similar issues that they face. So it was a real on-off switch in my head, May. I just decided one day I'm going to start talking about the challenges that I feel and face in a more transparent and connected way in order to support not only my team, I mean, my team's always first and foremost with me and I want to do everything I can to support them, but also then more broadly within the organisation, you know, how do I support people beyond my immediate interaction? And, you know, maybe that's about talking about how I deal with, you know, my my day-to-day challenges. And imposter syndrome is one of the points that I decided to be more transparent about. You're so right around, you know, if you can't see it, then it's hard to imagine it. So, but I've never thought about it in this context, as you've uh, pointed out. So on that point of being sharing your experiences, how do you deal with these feelings of imposter syndrome when they do occur? I have a number of different techniques and it depends on what situation I'm facing. I think the primary way that I deal with it is I actually give it a name. So, you know, some people could call it Sally. Okay, my imposter syndrome is Sally or Frank. You give it a name and you say, Frank, why are you here today? You know, I talk about imposter syndrome like that. Why is my imposter syndrome here? Why are you here? And I think what that gives me is the opportunity to sit outside of myself and observe what's going on inside my own brain in a way. It gives me a little bit of distance. Let's call it Frank. Why is Frank here today? Oh, okay, because I've got a meeting that I really want to be successful in in order to deliver something. And I'm worried, you know, that it's not going to go well. And so Frank has showed up in order to tell me that I need to really sharpen how I'm going to present myself in this meeting so that I fully embody everything, you know, that I want to put on the table. So when I realise that Frank is there for the day, I then think, okay, well, for me, one of the other techniques I use is what I wear. So I feel like sometimes I feel like it's a bit of armour if I'm if I'm wearing something that I feel confident in, then I start to exude more confidence. So I think about what I'm wearing and put on something that makes me feel really good. And the other trick I have is listening to music. So I really, my brain responds really well to encouraging music. So, you know, the classic Eye of the Tiger, you know, with the... <laughs> The, oh, oh, but really my song, like the key song for me is uh, Titanium by Sia and David Guetta. You know, that's such a great song and it really just makes me feel focused and capable and deserving, right? And so then I, I start to exude that. So it's not about necessarily defeating imposter syndrome. It's about recognising that it's there, understanding why it's there, and then paying attention 
to that and responding to, you know, why would my brain be bringing this forward? It's going to be different for every person, May. You know, people are going to respond to different types of tools. And so it's about just having awareness of what works for you when you're feeling self-doubt. You know, what helps you overcome that? Because what's happening in my head is I'm worried about this room, shouldn't be in this room, I'm going to be found out, you know, I'm scared. And then in my head I think, no, I've done my work. I know what I want to say. I know what I want to suggest as the way forward. And I'm really proud of the work the team has done to get us to this point. So do whatever you have to do in order to represent that fully in the moment. And so I just have this little battle going on in my brain. And it's not about defeating imposter syndrome. It's about, okay, what is it telling me? Why do I need to be doing more? And then, you know, having that moment of reflection and responding. Thanks, Nicole, for sharing all of that because it's fantastic tips because, as I said, I think, you know, nearly all of us will have experienced some form of imposter syndrome, but that stopping to name it, like what is actually happening here as opposed to just either freaking out or withdrawing, that's just a great way to start. And then, as you said, different things will work for different people, but I think you've laid out a really good framework there for people to have a think about, and I'll certainly think about that next time. I have those little voices in my head as well. Just to finish up the interview, we have a bit of a fun thing that we like to do at the end, which is what we call our quick fire round. And I ask you a couple of questions. You don't have time to think about your answers. You just tell me the first thing that pops into your head. (laughs) (laughs) 10 second answers. Oh, goodness. (laughs) We'll whip through these. They're very, very easy questions. So the first one is if you meet your 21-year-old self today, what advice would you give them? Just enjoy every day. Great advice. I think for any year, birthday that you're at. Um, (laughs) What is one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house career? Giving in-the-moment feedback. That's very true, actually. I think particularly when you transition from private practice to in-house and you realise the immediacy (laughs) of some of the advice that's required. Yes, because if you don't provide it, then the opportunity is gone, but also the work continues. And it's a it's a train that just keeps on rolling. That's it. Where do you go to upskill? I do a lot of reading in my own time. I listen to a lot of audiobooks and podcasts, and I also take courses. So at the moment, I'm in the middle of doing a Melbourne Business School course. Who's someone you really admire? Wow. I find something to admire in everybody. I think I'm always looking for something that I connect with in any person. But at the moment, the person that I think is really brave is Brene Brown, who is a shame researcher in the US. But the work that she's doing in terms of leadership and daring to be a leader in today's society, I think is really brave. And fits so well with the imposter syndrome that we were talking about earlier. Mm. So I can Mm. uh, see Brené's really resonates with you. Yes, very much. What's one item on your bucket list? I've always wanted to go to Spain and Portugal. For whatever reason, never have made it, but totally is on my bucket list of just meandering through Spain and Portugal. 
Oh, look, I can almost feel it myself, just the thought of uh, meandering through a foreign country, particularly <laughs> one as beautiful as Spain and Portugal would be wonderful. We will have that, May. We will. Know, it will happen. Exactly. Uh, what's your favourite hobby? Reading books at the moment because there's not much else to do, is there? <laughs> I know, I know. Lucky, <laughs> lucky you've got a very good hobby that you can do through these times. Yeah, well, the interesting thing was I actually gave up reading books for many, many years. That was part of how I actually fit everything into my life was I purposefully gave up things that I considered luxuries. So when my children were young and I was trying to balance my husband's career, my career, young children, I didn't read for about 13, 14 years basically, other than I'd allow myself, you know, a couple of books at Christmas. And so for me now, reading is such a delicious feeling and it's such a gift because I didn't have it for so long. So, yeah, it's really special to me. Well, I'm so glad that you've been able to get back into reading because you obviously get so much joy from it. So talking about reading, what are you reading at the moment? I've just finished some amazing books. So I finished Leave the World Behind and The Paper Palace and I'm now reading, I just started a book, Power and Consent by Rachel Doyle, which is a short piece that she has written on sexual harassment in the workplace, Power and Consent. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah, it sounds. I'm writing that one down. Mm. I always like this part of the interview because I get all my book suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the World Behind is chilling. It is so gripping and chilling. Such a good read. Okay, well, I'm taking both of those. Thank you for the recommendations. And then one last question. What is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Make a cup of coffee. <laughs> Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I walk immediately to the coffee machine and turn it on and make a coffee. And I love it. It's just, I know maybe it's not the healthiest thing, but I just, it gives me such joy. It's the first moment of the day and first coffee of the day, the two brought together. Beautiful. Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Nicole. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you a bit better, learn bit more not only about your career but you know more broadly about your personal life growing up your mother's culinary skills etc but really fantastic insights both into the whole work of mergers integrations demergers and I think for all those M&A lawyers out there some fantastic tips but also and more importantly I think for the broader in-house community your you know willingness to share your thoughts on the imposter syndrome was just really, really valuable. So I thank you for that. And thank you for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity here, May. I really appreciate the work that you're doing to support up and coming lawyers. It's really fantastic. Thanks, Nicole. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learned by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. 
I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time. Listener.